Well, we welcome all of you here uh, this morning and uh, to those who, who actually listen to uh, our service by podcast, we welcome those as well and pray that uh, the Lord will bless you uh, with this lesson. We're looking at the book of Acts, and so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the first chapter in the book of Acts, and we're also going to look at the 20th chapter in the book of uh, John, the Gospel of John. And we might, if we have time, look at a few other passages as well. And uh, we're looking at the infallible proofs, the infallible proofs of the Lord Jesus Christ's uh, resurrection. And let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Our Father in God, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that you would speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit, through your Holy Word, and as your children, we pray that we will grow in our understanding and our recognition of your truth and the proclamation of your truth. And we pray that as a body of believers, a corporate body of believers, that we will be faithful in sharing the gospel with the lost and dying humanity. And we acknowledge that You've planted this church here in this community to reach this community and the surrounding areas. And as you've blessed us with the resources to be heard online and to use the various communication technology, we pray that you would bless that and that people without a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, will come to know that He loves them, that He cares for them, that He gave His life upon the cross for them, that He rose up from the dead, and that He lives for them, that they might have life. And so we thank You, Father, for that wonderful privilege, both of studying Your Holy Word and of sharing Your Word. And now as we study, we pray that You be our teacher, through God the Holy Spirit, speak to us, touch our hearts, and transform our lives. And we give you all the praise and all the glory, for you alone are worthy to receive all glory and praise. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And so, there in your Bibles, if you turn to the first chapter in the book of Acts, We'll read the first three verses. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And our first point, and we shared this last week, and that is that Christians ought to use the Bible to both understand and interpret the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that you, you shouldn't read Christian books. Of course, you should read uh, Christian books. There are many, many wonderful Christian authors that have written many tremendous books and helps, devotionals, as well as other books 
missionaries have shared their, their experiences and how God has worked in their lives in various countries. And many pastors, preachers, theologians have all, have all written. And those are all beneficial for the Christian life and for Christian growth. And they're also very helpful when interpreting and, and studying the Scripture. But remember, the first source and the most important source is God's Holy Word. God's Word is the best commentary on itself. And Christians bear the responsibility to be whole Bible people. The whole Bible. The Bible is a library of 66 books. But sadly, most Christians are only familiar with a few books in the New Testament. And very rarely, if ever, open the Old Testament and study it. But we're to be whole Bible Christians. We're to be studying all 66 books. And so, Luke, in this prologue, as it's, as it's uh, referenced, he references the Gospel of Luke. But also, where he discusses the, the appearances of the Lord... Those appearances are listed in many different places within the New Testament. And we're going to be looking at one of those here in just, just a moment. But notice that he also emphasizes the life and the teachings of Jesus. The life and the teachings of Jesus. And you'll recall that last week we looked at those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And how they were confused. And how that Jesus joined in with them. And he asked them a few questions about this conversation that he had, that they were having. And then he, he began to teach them, beginning at, at Moses and all through the scripture, from Moses and the prophets. And he shared with them how the Old Testament refers to him, prophesies him tells of his coming and of his ministry, both of his, his kingship and the suffering servant. And we find those suffering servant songs in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And we mentioned last time that the, the Israelites were under Roman oppression at the time. So when Jesus came, they were looking for a conquering king. They were looking for a political leader. And if you know anything about politics, the answer to life is not in the government. That is not where the answer is. The answer is in Christ Jesus. The answer is in God's holy word. The answer for all of life's ills and all of life's problems and difficulties and challenges the answer is found in God's holy word because the answer to life is found in God and no one else. And so he emphasizes the life and the teachings of Jesus. And then he also, he also discusses the anointing of God the Holy Spirit in the giving of the commandments. Remember that all of Scripture is given by the Spirit of God. Over in the book of Hebrews, the Bible makes it very clear that holy men of God were inspired by God the Holy Spirit 
God is the author of his word. The others are just the writers. But God is the author. Now, his discussion includes the post-resurrection appearances during a 40-day period. Why 40 days? You know, we, we read through so many passages in the Scripture, we just read right over them. And, and they don't make the kind of impact that they should. 40 days, significant. You'll recall that when Jesus, after he was baptized, the Bible says that he was driven by the Spirit of God out into the wilderness, and there he was, and he fasted for 40 days. And after that 40-day period, the devil then came to him, tempting him. That 40-day period of, of preparation as he began his earthly ministry. And so after the resurrection, Jesus continued to appear to his disciples over a 40-day period. And something that you must keep in mind when you're reading the Scripture, the Scripture is not always organized in chronological time. Some passages are and others aren't. You need to understand that by the leadership of God the Holy Spirit, those who wrote, wrote as the Spirit of God brought them to their mind. But during this 40-day period after the resurrection, Jesus was completing his teaching and preparation of the disciples for their ministry. As Jesus went through 40 days of fasting and preparation at the beginning of his ministry, so now must the disciples go through this 40 days. But also, and I want to, to read what I wrote here, there was to be no doubt in the minds and the hearts of the disciples. Jesus had been resurrected and was alive. They were given time and these experiences to be confident and accepting of that truth, of that fact. You see, it's not uncommon when someone loses someone who is close to them to imagine all kinds of things in, in days that are, that are close to the passing of that person. But Jesus remained with the disciples and appeared to them many times over the course of these 40 days so that their belief in Him and the fact that He was alive was solidified. Why? Because they were to go out in the full confidence and faith in God that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and beside Him there is no other Savior. Peter preached the message. Jesus Christ. There is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. And he had to preach that message with confidence. Now, we're going to look at a passage that shows how the disciples were feeling soon after the resurrection, or rather, soon after the crucifixion, I should say. So turn with me to John chapter 20. 
John chapter 20. And beginning at verse 19. Then the same day at evening. Now this is the first day of the week, Sunday, which was resurrection day. Being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So the disciples are together in a location and notice that it says Thomas was missing. Now we're going to look at Thomas and that experience next week. So only certain disciples were present. We know that at least Thomas was missing. Now it says that it was the evening. So some believe that this was one of the reasons why the church began meeting on Sunday evenings. As a matter of fact, in most Baptist churches, we have not only services in the morning, but also on Sunday evening. And uh, that's another reason why it would be beneficial for our congregation to pray that the Lord would provide us with a building of our own because our services and the, the number of services and the various activities and ministries would continue to grow but we make do with what with what we have uh, thus far but they began meeting on Sunday they believe because Sunday evening was this time when Jesus appeared to the disciples but notice they were afraid of what might happen to them. And it is impossible or maybe very difficult for anyone today to truly understand what the disciples were going through other than Jesus himself. You'll recall that he walked with them for three years. They, they lived with him. They traveled with him. They listened to him as he preached. They saw him as he interacted with people, both with the people who, who believed in him and who accepted him and, and those who rejected him and how he, he interacted with those people and how he ministered to them and all of the things that he was able to do. You'll recall that when they were, they were there out on the sea and there was a raging storm and he was sleeping in the back of the boat. And you'll recall how that they were, they were afraid and they came to him and they, they shook him and they woke him up and they said, don't you care about us? We're about to drown. 
And he rebuked the wind and the sea. Peace, be still. Thy peace mentions to them here, peace. And that's how people are still greeted in Israel. Because it's the Hebrew shalom. Shalom, shalom. The peace of God be upon you. But here Jesus, he understood. But they were afraid that the authorities, the priestly establishment, that had taken Jesus and had arrested him and had him actually killed, crucified. They were afraid. They were there. And it says the doors were shut. We understand that to mean they, not only were they closed, but they were also locked, okay? They were in fear of their lives. They thought they might actually be rounded up and taken out and killed themselves, or at least put into prison. And we know that that happened as time went on. Several of the disciples were arrested. Many of the disciples were martyred. As a matter of fact, the only apostle, the only of, of, of the twelve, that died what we believe to be a natural death was actually the apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John. All the others were murdered. All the others were martyred for their dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice now, Jesus, it says, came and stood in the midst of them. He appears and he stands, he stands right there among them. Jesus knew what they were experiencing. He knew the fear that was in their, in their hearts. And, and you'll recall from your studying the Bible that in the Old Testament as well as the New, whenever an angel would appear to someone, they would be filled with fear. And the angel generally would say, Fear not. Do not be afraid. And then there would be a message given and a task given. Well, not only were the disciples afraid because of what the authorities might do, but in the same event is described over in the Gospel of Luke in the, in the 24th chapter, and it says that when Jesus actually came and stood in their midst, that they were afraid, thinking that there was a ghost, some kind of a spirit in the midst of them. And the Lord says to them, Peace be with you. Or in other words, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He speaks peace to them, the shalom. And then he goes on to share with them, this is your task. Now, he shows them his hands and his side. Why did he do that? He wanted them to know without a shadow of a doubt that he was and is in fact that Jesus Christ, who was crucified on the cross, He shows them the wounds, the scars in His hands and in His side. And over in the Gospel of Luke, it goes on to say, and also in His feet. He wanted them to know and to be confident of this, that He was in fact alive. Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to say that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. 
Now, that doesn't really give you the full impact. They were glad. They were more than glad. The word that's, at, that's used there in the Greek actually is filled with joy. They were filled with joy and they were rejoicing. Now, turn to, to John 16. And again, this is another example of where the Bible is a great commentary on itself and should be used to interpret. Because this was a fulfillment of something that Jesus had shared with them while he was with them prior to his crucifixion. Uh, John chapter 16 and beginning at verse 16. A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is saying. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him. And he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. Now, stop for a moment and think about it. See, they're going to weep. And why? Because he's about to be crucified. But the world will rejoice. Remember that the world rejoices over that which is evil, wicked, and, and dishonoring to God. That's what the world rejoices over. And we, like the disciples, ought to weep. That's what James says. When we see all that is happening around the world. But getting back to here. He said, most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Notice that? And so, he appears to, to the disciples, and in the Greek it says, and they were filled with joy. Here in this version, the New King James Version says, Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. When they realized that this was in fact Jesus, what he had told them earlier had been fulfilled. Now they were filled with joy because they knew he lives. They had been filled with fear that something was going to happen to them. And then when he appears, they're filled with fear because they've never had an experience like this before. And then they realize this is in fact the Lord Jesus. He shows them his hands and his, his side and his feet. And he explains to them that, that he is in fact alive. That he has been risen from the dead. And then he, he doesn't stop there. Because he's going to give them a charge now. Jesus commissions the, the disciples to preach the gospel. Peace to you 
And here we see the Trinity at work. Notice what he says. Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So notice, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, one God who has revealed himself in three distinct persons. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But notice that they work in harmony and in unison. In unison in that they, as one, are committed to the salvation of the human race. In harmony, because they, they function in differing roles. Just like music. You can play two notes that are of different octaves, but we say that's a unison, even though they're, they're of different octaves. But if you, if you add a fifth or a fourth, that creates a harmony. And so you have different melodies being played all at the same time. Another term that's used is counterpoint. So different melodies being played at the same time that enrich the sound. The Trinity works in unison, but also in harmony at the same time. Because the goal, the plan, and the will of God is that the human race be saved. And notice, they're at work in the commissioning and in the empowering of the disciples to fulfill this commission. And what is that commission? The commission is to preach the gospel. He says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And the word that's used there is apostello. It means sent ones. That's what that word means. Jesus was sent by the Father for the purpose of going to the cross, dying and paying the penalty for our sin, shedding His blood to atone for our sin, rising on the third day, and then he remained and showed himself for 40 days. This is one appearance to the disciples. And as we'll look at, at the passage next week, we'll see that he appears again to them at several more times. As a matter of fact, turn to 1 Corinthians and to chapter 15. 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. Now I encourage you to write these passages down. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you receive, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I deliver to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, that's of Peter. Then by the twelve, or the group of disciples. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, now that's the brother of the Lord. Then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me. That's a, the Apostle Paul who's writing here. As by one 
born out of due time. Back to, uh, back to John. Did you know that Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brethren, disciples at one time? Had you ever read that before? Were you aware of that? Are we to believe? Because the unbelievers, the world wants you to believe that, that this is just all a fairy tale, that it never happened, that it was an impossibility, and that these people were deranged who wrote these things about Jesus coming back from the dead. But the fact is that on one occasion, more than 500 people saw him after the resurrection and during this 40-day period. Doing so to solidify their faith and their confidence and their trust in him as the Messiah so that they would go out and proclaim the message as eyewitnesses of his power and majesty and the truth that he is the living Savior. Amen. Why is it that the world will accept the writings of Plato, whose writings are based on the work of Socrates? But Socrates didn't write it down, Plato did. And then Aristotle was a student of Plato. Yet we have more, we have more verification for the Bible than they do for Plato and for Aristotle and for Socrates. Less than 10, I think, I think 11, there are only like 11 ancient manuscripts of one or two ancient books written by the, those philosophers. Whereas we have thousands, and it's actually tens of thousands, and, fra and fragments of the Bible in the hundreds of thousands. It's, it's incredible. People who are linguists tell us, even the unbelievers, that the, the Bible has more verification than any other ancient writing in all of human history. So why is it that, that we can accept the eyewitness accounts in the, in the unbelieving world, but they refuse to accept the accounts, the eyewitness accounts, of God's people. Because the unbelieving world is led and guided by the devil. Jesus said he is the, he is the, the ruler of this world. That, that means the, the world that is at odds with God. Rejecting God. But make no mistake about it. God our Father is the one who, who feeds the animals and provides the food for the human race, who causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall. Amen? It is our God who provides life, and we are to trust in Him. Now notice, He commissions them, as we go back to John here, and He, he says this, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now what does that mean? So what, is, what does that mean? It is an authority that Jesus has given to the church. And what is that authority? It is the authority to preach and to proclaim the Word of God. And we have the right and the authority of God Himself to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the human race. And that if you come to Him, 
in faith, humbly admitting that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness, and you come to Him and ask Him to forgive you, and to come into your heart and into your life to be your Savior and Lord, that He will and you will be forgiven and you will receive the gift of eternal life. But we also have this authority to say that if you reject Christ as your Savior, you will die in your sin and wind up in hell for all eternity. It's not a popular message these days. It's offensive. You hear a lot of talk about, oh, that's offensive. And I've shared with you that, that uh, there are these groups who are saying that the Bible is racist. Chauvinistic, old-fashioned, etc., etc., etc. Because they're lost. And because they reject the truth of God. They reject the fact that God sent His Son into this world. Why? Because He loves the human race. And there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Without Him, you will die in your sin. Jesus preached that Himself. There with the religious rulers of His day, he said, unless you believe in me, unless you accept me as your Savior, you will die in your sin. And we've mentioned this before. Just because a person is born into a Christian family, or into a Jewish family, or into any family, and the parents or the grandparents in that family happen to be believers, doesn't necessarily make the kids believers. Each individual is responsible for accepting Christ as Savior on their own, individually. No one can come to know Christ as Savior apart from God the Holy Spirit and apart from hearing the message of the Gospel. That's why we take the Gospel and the Great Commission is to take the Gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus appeared to them. Not to just make them feel good, okay? But to minister to them, to encourage them, and to commission them, and to put them to work for the kingdom of God. They're to proclaim the gospel. Now, What lessons do we learn from these passages? And we looked at these last time. The Bible is not a collection of fairy tales. It is the infallible authority of God. It is God's holy word. No matter what the, the university professor says in some liberal college. And I'll have you know that if not for the believing people in the, in the beginning of this nation, we wouldn't have colleges. The majority of the colleges in the United States of America were founded by Christians and Jews. Do you know what the main reason was for the founding of the colleges? Was to teach men and women 
about the scripture so that they could serve God. We're to be thorough and mature in our knowledge, understanding, and application of the scripture. That requires personal involvement, personal responsibility. We are all responsible for the condition of our spiritual life. When I was teaching over at the college, I would share with students, you are where you are today because of choices that you've made. And if you're not where you want to be, then do something about it to correct it. But don't blame your mother and don't blame your father and don't blame the government and don't blame your neighbor and don't blame everyone else for the mess that you've made of your own life. You are responsible for your life. Oh, that's not a popular message. They're, they're telling me now that that message is racist. Personal responsibility. We are responsible for the condition of our relationship with the Lord. Where to grow in biblical wisdom and faith requires devotion. Not just every now and then, but every day. Every day. Spending time alone with God. Listening to God speak. We're, we're to faithfully share the truth of Scripture with one another. We're to teach one another. We're to learn from one another. We're to learn from God's Holy Word. It's called discipleship. We are His disciples. And we're to be about the Master's business. And lastly, we're to fulfill the Lord's commandments. That is the commission to witness to the lost, to share the gospel of Christ. And we're to keep on witnessing. And witnessing, and witnessing, and witnessing. You see, we can witness confidently. Why? Because we serve a living Savior. The apostles of the first century were eyewitnesses of the Lord's life and His resurrection and His ascension. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. The invitation is God's invitation to you. If you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's God's invitation to you to give your heart and life to Him and to gain the wonderful gift of eternal life, forgiveness, hope for tomorrow. And for those who've been struggling in their own Christian life, a time of rededication and renewal. Maybe you've accepted Jesus, but you've not been scripturally baptized. It is an invitation to come and to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Jesus was baptized. Believers in the in the New Testament, in the early church, were baptized, and all through history were baptized. And some people were baptized as babies. Uh-uh. Doesn't count. It's called believer's baptism because you're supposed to be baptized after you've accepted Jesus as Savior. And how can you do that when you're a little baby? You're in a state of innocence as a baby. And so as we sing, you come, you make your decision. To follow the Lord. Let's stand please.